you know, we have individuals who are paying more for daycare on a monthly basis than their actual rent or mortgage. This institution is important to your community and what it, what it delivers, what it brings back. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. In this episode of In the Know, ACCT's President for Public Policy and External Relations, Ji Hang Lee, Strategic Communications Director, David Connor, and Educational Services Director, Colleen Allen, talk with the Lumina Foundation's Vice President for Strategic Engagement about accreditation and the future of employment. This is part two of a two-part series. If you missed part one, be sure to check it out for more information on the topic. I'm going to editorialize a little bit for my personal opinion, because we've discussed some things, Deborah, I think we actually kind of talked about a couple of these ideas before, um, about a month ago or maybe two months ago. And uh, Noah Brown, our president at ACCT, uh, you know, wrote about some of these things in his book, and I think a lot about it. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of these issues are, when we talk about sustainability, uh, the way that I kind of see it from a bird's eye view is that a lot of just sort of nationally speaking and comprehensively, we've kind of become disintegrated mm -hmm. and, you know, self-insulated um, from one another. We see it in politics, and that's, that's not what I'm going <laughs> to editorialize about. But, for example, um, Deborah, when you were talking about your father, my father was not blue-collar. He went into the Navy, and then he ended up working for the Navy Department and mm -hmm. the Department of Defense. He and my mother both graduated from high school and did not go to college. But my father gra uh, graduated. He retired from a very high-level position at DOD. My mother read medical textbooks for fun, and I inherited that from her. They got very, um, I always had the sense that their elementary and secondary educations were a lot higher quality than mine in a lot of different ways. And part of what I mean by that is the philosophical basis of it, mm -hmm. is that um, you know they were educated to believe education is not strictly an economic issue. This is not to get you a job. This is because you're a part of this country and you need to understand your role in this country and the better educated everybody is, that works out better for everybody. And I think that came from the, the pre-great America, you know, coming out of the wars. It, it was from when everybody had to fight for themselves and together as communities mm -hmm. locally and nationally. And I think, uh, you know, we've grown to such an extent that I don't, I don't really hear that. That was imparted to me through my parents and my grandparents. Yeah. But I don't, you know, civics was a class in school. And I admit, I, <laughs> you know, I was lacking in a lot of basic civics education. I've been educated here at ACCT by a number of people who studied public policy and government and all of those things. And um, I, I feel like it, um, all of this stuff feeds into this conversation as well. I feel like there's, there's a less comprehensive um, appreciation for education nationally. Uh, I feel like ACCT, and again, this is, this is my personal perspective, but I feel like, Colleen, to your question, I feel like ACCT has a role in sort of reintroducing this to college leadership. You know, think about how your colleges are educating people beyond just training them for work. And that then gets into the importance of the soft skills. 
those soft skills, uh, you know, have everything to do with communication and they have to do with language skills, but they also have to do with just an innate sense of who you are and how you fit into this society. So that's, you know, that's a lot of lofty observation, but, but I mean, I think it's really important because some of the way that I see a lot of these things interacting is we have the federal system. And then we have the state systems, and they're in opposition instead of working together. Uh, And then institutions have their own interests that serve their own students. But there are commonalities. This this is where I'm going to ask you to talk about this QA commons a little bit. But but what, what... are the commonalities what are these common you know call them whatever you want soft skills or whatever but when we talked before so i studied english and before i was an english major i was a biology major Mm -hmm. either way i would have graduated from the college of arts and sciences they were integrated then uh you know over the past 10 to five years there was STEM. The big push was STEM. And I'll never forget, I went to a conference with these incredibly well-educated students who were um, working in cybersecurity, and their employer said, we had to send them back to college when we brought them in because they had no soft skills. They couldn't communicate. They were human robots, incredibly intelligent and skilled, but lacking in really basic what used to be basic skills and are now being put back in. So then STEM became STEAM. And I feel like we're, um, there's a, to me, there's an unspoken missing element that was there to begin with. It was part of the foundation. And then with a focus on economic interest, it was extracted. That's my personal view. Uh, but I'd like to hear your thoughts about how this folds back into accreditation, into quality assurance. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the, the, the two things that you mentioned, two themes that you address that resonate a lot with me, um, I mean, we, we definitely have, uh, you know, pendulum has swung pretty far um, away from the concept of being an educated nation, being part of the foundation of a democracy. And... If you go back and look at you know the speech that Lyndon Johnson gave when the Higher Ed Act was first enacted, the language is pretty lofty, and it's lofty about enabling opportunity, not in a narrow economic sense, but in a sense of participation in the society, a full participation in the society, which I completely agree is about more than whether you have a job, though in our kind of society, that's pretty damn important. Um, and I think that um, actually, interestingly, the sort of amazing political moment that we're in now has, I think, spurred an, a more urgent conversation that we've needed for a long time about responsibility to community and responsibility to um, democracy and what our education system contributes to that. Um, and I think there's work, lots of work to be done on that, both at the elementary, secondary, and post-secondary level, because I think all of us have to play a role in that, including community colleges. Um, interestingly, much of that is completely absent from the conversation about quality, and it it shouldn't be. Um, the way I think about it is, and, and it's another reason, not the only reason, but it's another reason why I focus on those broad cross-cutting capacities that education provides you, because many of them, if not most of them, are actually as important to 
being a responsible, informed citizen as they, and a leader in your community as they are the foundational skills that the cybersecurity employer wants. There, there's a lot of them that are literally the same and, um, and, and actually can be taught in a way that covers both those things. Um, I, too, was an art history major and then got a graduate degree in English. And of course, I oh, now have a job that's You're one of the ones different. that uh, uh, President Obama talked about. Oh, those, those are the majors, majors right? yes. Yeah, those are <laughs> you got to watch out for them, right? <laughs> exactly. But interestingly, um, so in a, before my job at Lumina Foundation, and I worked for the Association of American Colleges and Universities, and we did some studies on the career trajectories of people depending on their majors. And there's two things about that. One, in one sense, the major is actually less important than I think people make it. You know, we can, we can it's one of those uh, ex exam ex examples of uh, you have the data, so you track something because you have the data, not because necessarily it's the most important thing to track, right? But we know what people major in, and we know where they end up through some survey, you know, some census data. Um, so a couple things that you find, of course, for certain majors, there's a wide array of career tracks. For others, it's much more narrow. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. um, some, however, also feed people into what I would call public service kinds of professions at much higher rates, mm -hmm. and that includes humanities and social science majors. Um, they don't make as much money. Mm -hmm. um, but they may be contributing an awful lot to our society, um, becoming nurses and teachers and you know, <clears throat> doing public service. Um, so I think that has to be part of the conversation um, for sure. And, and I think that in many ways you're, you're also right that the debate about um, sort of just supporting higher education and sort of bashing it for not somehow fixing the economy on its own, right? Um, it allows us to sort of set those other issues aside. And I think that actually a lot of people, especially right now, are saying, wait a minute, huh, maybe we do need to revisit that. And the, the good thing, I think, is that actually you don't, it's not an either or choice. <laughs> it's not like our systems need to only be about workforce or only be about, um, you know, some kind of fuzzy <laughs> outcomes. Um, I don't know what to call, like, the, I hate using the term soft skills because it, the stuff, those are really hard. <laughs> They're really hard to get good at. Um, and uh, we hear all the time from employers that that's what, it's both what they need and what is most lacking. Um, but I, I take your earlier point about how people have to start in a certain place and you can tell them that that's really important and that's why we want you to take these extra courses. But, you know, in, in effect, we have to build it into the whole system so that it's not a choice of this is going to cost you a little bit of extra money because we think it's good for you. No, it's like the society needs to invest, right, in having everyone have those courses um, because the communities and the democracy actually needs it. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you that that's missing from this conversation. And I don't know how to like push that back into the conversation, it's pretty hard. I think it's more likely to happen actually at the local level. I mean, your institutions could be, could be the center of that kind of dialogue because they're so close to the community. Um, it's practically impossible to have that kind of conversation in Washington, D.C. or in policy, mm -hmm. but it, it, I think it could happen <laughs> at the more local level. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I think um, it, it's just interesting to me. Uh, well, I went on to get an MFA in creative writing, and I, I just did that out of a personal love of writing. Mm-hmm. I thought I'm doing it anyway. Uh, why not? And it turned out to be to, to impart a lot of practical, Absolutely. unexpectedly yeah. practical uh-huh. skills that are very difficult to convey to other people. But as an editor, um, it comes in handy. As somebody who communicates yeah. for a living, it comes in handy because it just teaches you actually psychology, how to read people differently. And as part of that, I mean, I would even say that my uh, my father's from North Carolina, from you know a very blue collar background, and some of his family. Uh, somebody actually asked my mother years ago, you know, why is it important to you that your kids go to college? And it was kind of a challenge. I don't think she was genuinely, you know, seeking an answer. It was a rhetorical question, sort of an elite, you know, why are you elite type of question. And to my mother, it wasn't, it wasn't about attainment. It wasn't about credentialing. It was about um, curiosity and, and, you know, that's the way that we thought. But as I've spent, um, my mom passed away earlier this year and I've actually spent more time with that relative this year and I've, I've been challenged myself and discovered we have a lot in common. She's very curious about everything. She is a self-educator. Just she has an impression that uh, higher education is this elite institution that rejects people like her family and takes their money. It's a waste of money, right? Because you don't need that to live a good life. And again, you know, I I put that together with my creative writing education because we're all characters. And I think there are commonalities and there's something lost in the communication, probably. And community colleges are kind of a middle ground in between that because there's an opportunity to educate people about other things, (laughs) you know, while also equipping them to work. And um, I I just... I would love to see all of that come back together because yeah. it's no secret there's a societal rift right now. But I, I don't think it's inherently, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's real. I think there's just a lot of people who don't understand one another. Yeah. And, you know, I, maybe I'm very naive, but I feel mm-hmm. like that could help to heal a lot of these other problems if we can just get a get it back together and have a more holistic approach. Well, I also think the broader, you don't need college or higher education conversation stems from increasing tuition and fee rates. You know, I was in a meeting where somebody was saying $70,000 and I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) I was like, it was in the 40s when I was going. Wow, it just keeps going and going. Uh, That was obviously, that was, yeah, well, this is also with room and board. Uh, And then, so that, that is a subset of the conversation, but that also is the, it's the borrowing student yeah. loans and the 1.5 trillion dollars yeah and it has such a it, it literally kind of is the cloud over yeah, yeah. and like you know and as a as a parent of two children uh, i think you know i am i i am happy for them to learn something in college but I'm also very happy when they will stop, when they'll get their degree and start working. <laughs> I think I'll be, and as, yeah, as I think, I think the happiest day, 
I, I think for all parents, it's the, the you're the happiest when your child graduates from uh, you know from college and gets a degree and starts working. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast to bring you an important message. I'm here in the studio with Director of Educational Events, Christina Simons. Christina, where are you going to be from October 24th through 27th? I'm going to be in New York, Jacob. ACCT's annual congress. It's going to be a great time. And now, back to In the Know. Now, I'm only playing devil's advocate because I agree about the cost, but... What if you had calculated the cost of rearing a child before you had children and looked at that that way? You know, you well, wouldn't I, do it. I, I, that's an interesting question. I, I also think this is part. And I think this is. I think this is also another byproduct <laughs> of the fact that we have the lowest birth rate in the last thirty years. Oh, people, interesting. People are making. People yeah. are making that calculus. Calculus. Yeah. I think many individuals who want more than one or two or three children are saying, you know, it's financially not feasible for you to continue to have more and more children. Hmm. It's just an economic conversation. It's beyond just college. Let's talk about the average cost of like daycare, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, we have individuals who are paying more for daycare on a monthly basis than their actual rent or mortgage. Mm -hmm. That... (laughs) And that's a reality for a whole lot of our students that I think we should acknowledge. I mean... Um, I believe next week um, I'll be speaking with a community college student trustee who was at the National Legislative Summit, and she's extraordinary. Um, She's a mother of four. She is uh, um, retired from the Army, Mm -hmm. and she's 50 years old. And she wrote a really great article, which is why I wanted to interview her. And she'll be speaking at our annual congress this year. A little plug for that. But (laughs) she's, you know, it's just taken more time. But, um, you know, she's she's getting through these processes. And all, you know, coming from a certain, you know, Colleen, you told me that you participated in sort of a team building activity where they said, if you were born with this privilege, take five steps ahead or whatever. And you realize from the beginning where you are, where you start off, and that affects you for the rest of your life. And daycare, I mean, a mother of four, what are the chances a mother of four is not going to, is going to be able to get to college before that stage in her life? It's highly unlikely. And a lot of our students, you know, may be, a parent of one and going to school and working, but. But I mean, that's <laughs> those are today's students. That, that, those are students we have to get, and we have to get over. I think we've heard in this conversation. There's this, there's obstacles, and they run the gamut from perception obstacles, <laughs> because frankly, higher education in America has been an elitist system for a really long time. Community colleges are unusually breaking of a very long American tradition um, of elitism. So that that tradition influences how your relative thinks about, is it welcoming to me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are very practical obstacles, like I have children, what do I do with them, and how do I go back into college? Um, I, I think that from from my point of view, the quality conversation has to start from that reality and then ask what do we need what do they deserve those students deserve 
to have those obstacles taken out of their way, but also deserve for that credential to really position them for moving up or moving where they want to go, mm -hmm. right? And so, I mean, that's a good starting point for a conversation. Um, I, I think that it sort of splits apart, though, interestingly, the, the regulatory conversation is often about protecting those students from sort of the worst possible outcomes. Um, and that's sort of one avenue of the work, and it's important, actually. And that's where you look at you know, really egregious default rates and all that other stuff. But the broader conversation also has to happen about what does quality mean and for our society, not just for institutions or not just for um, the privileged students. Yeah, well, you know, this is maybe a, a tangential reference, but I've actually seen, you know, in the, the health world, there's actually been a kind of paradigm, well, it, it hasn't taken place, but there's been a paradigm shift introduced, which is, uh, can we consider not only looking at medicine as a treatment when something goes wrong, but looking at treating well people so to keep them well, make them better? Yeah, and but not so much a prevention, a medical intervention for well people to maintain and even bolster their wellness. Mm -hmm. And you know but what? A, but that stems from a financial cost. The healthier people in an insurance program is better for insurance and it's better for the individual. So they, sure, yeah. So. That extends, in my opinion, to the to education and to the economy. Yeah. You know. You, but <laughs> I don't think. The public good right. But I, but I think for higher education, we've not really narrowed down this. We've never, we haven't gotten to the conversation of it being just a financial Goal. Does that like we what do for goal? for like higher education has never been like a financial enterprise, like in higher and healthcare. Healthcare makes its decisions predominantly around finances. I don't think some of the, especially on the academic side of, of the oh, house right, of our institutions, right, right. we're not making decisions like uh, that are key to, key towards. Uh, financial decisions. You know, we have enrollment issues, but I, I, I and this goes right. back to something that you said is like, when you get data, you you actually need then more, more data. data. <laughs> exactly. No, I think I, I think you're right that, but there too. So we have a whole um, area of work we're building out around institutional finance, and again, part of that conversation is about institutional viability questions. What you were talking about earlier, um, but we're also trying to say, well, let's also talk about. Uh, student affordability and quality as you think about how we finance. What are we spending our money on? Are we spending our money on the things that actually produce the quality for the students who really need it or not? Um, and, and you're absolutely right. We often, I think actually a lot of the decisions are driven by money, but we're not thinking intentionally and smartly about where the money goes. Lots of institutions literally can't answer the question of, you know, where is the money going? Where is the tuition? And that actually is a, a vulnerability in terms of public trust mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the public doesn't understand, like, how it works because we don't even understand how it works. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you're right that there's a financial part to this that is both an institutional finance part and then also, obviously, an individual affordability. But back to your point about the win-win theory, you know, which was 
theory, you know, mm -hmm. rather than the win-lose theory. Mm -hmm. And your point, Ji Hang, about health, health has focused in on the finance, but your point with education, if you have a win-win approach, if, if you're willing to make that investment, that financial investment in your community, in the students, get them in there, they come back, back to, to yes, and, and it comes back in the form of tax dollars. Have and been invested right. in, in the higher place. education. Right. Right. It goes back to your larger yeah. point earlier about the fraying of that ability to even think in those terms, mm -hmm. because you have to be thinking not just about what is this, what's in it for me or my kids. Mm -hmm. It's wait a minute, I want to live in a community that is healthier, that you know has fewer criminals that is spending less money on prisons and more money on parks mm -hmm. and education is part of that and mm -hmm. that means for me I don't have children I care about the quality of my k-12 system in my community mm -hmm. because it's about the community um, so you're absolutely right I, I, how we get back to that is is a an interesting and challenging um, question well <laughs> with that in mind that that is exactly you know a primary role anyway of trustees of boards um, at community colleges that is their job in great part it's to give the community what the community needs so um, not to put you on the spot but it's a challenge so I would just like to volley back over to you what would you identify as uh, some priority areas for how a board can have some sort of effect in improving um, quality and you know meeting accreditation standards, but maybe maybe even more than that. What needs to be done at this time? I think that going back to our, our question of the broader purpose, um, that boards have a really important role in helping the institution define their broader purpose, and then from that <laughs> to actually define what they mean by quality, mm -hmm. and how the delivering on that quality really serves the community and serves both the students and the broader purpose, right? And once the board, if the board can articulate that, one, they will do a better job of um, talking to the larger community about why they should be investing, but they also then, the institution has a starting point to say, okay, like this is what our vision is, mm -hmm. this is where we're trying to get, so what are the implications of that for what kind of programs we should have, what those programs should look like in terms of outcomes, what kinds of data should, should we be looking at, um, and in what kind of cycle. And, I mean, the board can set a big agenda like that. And then I do think the board should, once they set that agenda, then they should have some kind of fairly um, consistent, um, periodic look at data that shows them how are we doing against this broad vision. Not in a narrow sort of um, mechanistic kind of way, or, or oh, we, we missed this target and therefore we're terrible, but here's the vision. How are we doing against this broader vision? And how um, do we advocate? I mean, you advocate at the national level. You teach our trustees how to be advocates. Is part of that conversation what David is getting to and what you're getting to just informing the community but also, you know, walking that fine line because they are not supposed to be speaking for the college, but, you know, advocating for that important role of why this, this institution is important to your community and what it, what it delivers, what it brings back, the R, all back to the ROI. Mm -hmm. right, right, in a broad sense. I mean, do they advocate that, in that yeah, way? Yeah, I mean, we've been thinking a lot about that at Lumen Foundation, and we've been doing a lot of 
because we are very aware of this sort of damaging set of misperceptions about the value of college um, and some of the rhetoric that's out there that's not favorable to the agenda we believe is really important, just getting more people to have the opportunity for high quality learning. Um, we've done a bunch of research, for instance, at the national level, but it could be replicated at the local level about sort of what are the narratives out there that, are the, that reflect the deeply held beliefs people have. Um, so lots of people do, do polling, um, but in many ways this analysis has to do with kind of trying to answer the question, well, X percent of people say yes to this, well, why? Like, what is the story? You were going back to the idea of sort of narrative and storytelling. Like, what's the story in their head that makes them think the system's elitist or think it's not for me or think it's too expensive or, um, you know. Why is it? Uh, why is it? So, and so we've, it's, a, it's a really fascinating piece of research that involves um, actually kind of big data quantitative research initially in what are all the conversations that are going on online. Basically, it uses the power of the fact that all these co dialogues are actually happening online. You've got stories, you've got articles written by journalists, you've got blogs, you've got, and then you've got all the commentary <laughs> on it, right? Yeah. You've got podcasts, <laughs> you've got all this information. Um, and so what they do is they sort of have an algorithm that goes out there and they look for, they sort of filter out the noise as best they can. Mm -hmm. And then they try to surface like what keeps coming up again and again and what does it mean in terms of the store? What's the evolving, st emerging story? Mm -hmm. And interestingly, you, you, um, some of it is not surprising. Some of it is actually favorable. There is a narrative out there, for instance, about this. Maybe we've reached a tipping point away from protecting public investment in education and gone too far over to the private side. Um, that's encouraging. But there is a robust narrative about education for employment and how it should be leading to employment. Um, there is a really interesting narrative um, that they sort of title the American Dream Deferred um, that goes to telling those stories that you referenced of this person did everything we told them to do, got out, has debt, can't buy the house, can't because the economy is not um, in, in good shape. Um, that's an interesting dialogue or narrative for us to engage because on the one hand, it's not favorable to, to us. I mean, if that goes too far, people will say, no, I'm not even, I'm not going there. I don't have time, I don't have money, I don't want to end up in debt. Is, that is occurring today. And it's definitely today, occurring. And um, uh, every student, uh, every Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times article about some student that has $100,000 in debt, it adds to the, 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 overall, the, well, the background noise yep. about, yeah, you, if, you you, if, you, if you go to college and you take out $100,000 in debt, you're not going to be able to buy a house. You're not going to be able to, you yep. know, you're, you're, you may default. You know, a, a myriad of conversations uh, that will have a dramatic impact. Um, it is interesting that you guys kind of took a look at that, yeah. uh, those yeah. scenarios. And, I mean, what we're trying to do, I mean, we see as one of our roles, we, we obviously make grants to people, but we also see ourselves as, responsible to be leading conversations about this to create an environment in which more people understand the value, um, understand what quality looks like, mm -hmm. what a quality path might be. Um, and so we're really trying to get better at that. And part of it is, uh, the, the philosophy is, you know, if you know what people already believe deeply, mm -hmm. if you know what conversations they're already having, 
then you can more easily enter that conversation and meet them where they are and then potentially take them to a different place. Um, and in some cases, it's um, the, the direct attack often does not work. Um, and in fact, there's, there's really fascinating research out there about sometimes you play into your opponents in, by just s repeating the negative. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's actually not a good idea from a communications point of view. Um, even though you, you're wanting to challenge something, but you literally use the same words as the person who's framing the conversation, and it makes it worse rather than better. Um, so the idea is, no, like go to the, the narratives that are either already favorable and amplify them, give them concrete stories to amplify them, or go to the ones that are kind of just a little bit off. <laughs> Um, there's a whole set of narratives, for instance, around the concept of buyer beware. Like, you should be afraid because you might, you know, get something not of high value. Mm -hmm. It's similar to the American Dream Deferred. And our sense of that one is, well, you know, uh, no, we don't want to be in a position of saying buyer beware, but we could be in a position of saying buyer be aware. There's a lot out there. You should understand mm -hmm. your example of the difference between part-time and full-time. A, a buyer, a student, should be aware of what the implications are for the different decisions that you can make and the different options that are out there. So we're trying to figure out how do we tell stories or how do we package existing stories in a way that can appeal to someone who's already in that space but might be thinking, oh, hmm, maybe there are avenues to this that are not as scary and that are affordable and don't require as much loans. Um, or, oh, hmm, yeah, I might need to borrow something, but what I'm going to get is actually going to position me for um, economic opportunity that I, that I literally can't get any other way. Um, so that's how we're kind of thinking about that. We only have a couple minutes left, but I one last thing, and it may be difficult to answer this in a very concise way, um, but nevertheless, you said the American dream deferred a couple of times, and I think... Uh, I, I suspect that was not an accidental term. Mm -hmm. um, refers, in my mind, back to Langston Hughes. And a lot of this conversation has been very broad and sort of about what, what will work better for everybody. But then we definitely have people who are marginalized, literally, if you look at the data. Yep. They are at a disadvantage, um, even beginning with their earlier education. And yep. so, so these... Um, quote-unquote soft skills may actually be severely lacking because of, you know, poorer um, elementary and secondary education. So thinking about all of that, quality assurance and, um, and looking at outcomes, how, how does that balance with equity, with helping people who, are, who start off behind and get further and further, further behind as time goes on? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Lumina Foundation, in many ways, is moving to a place where really equity is at the center of everything we do because we recognize two things. Um, obviously, there's a moral imperative in the system we currently have that you're absolutely right, um, serves some students far better than others. Um, the data is really important in that, and we're insisting on sort of everyone we talk to and everyone we fund, we're like, we need you to actually show us that, particularly around issues of racial difference, which we believe are particularly important in this conversation, that you need to have good data on how, how those students are doing. Are you serving those students well? 
Um, and it, the, one of the ways it intersects in the quality conversation, two ways it intersects in the quality conversation, I think. Um, one is, are we giving our best, highest quality experiences to some students and not others? Mm-hmm. And do we have data to show that? Mm-hmm. Are we steering <laughs> students of color in one direction versus mm-hmm. another? Um, how do we prevent that? How do we assure that they're getting what they need recognizing that sometimes they need more because of where they came from, um, but that they deserve the same level of quality in terms of the outcomes. The only way to do that, though, is to actually track and find out where where are they, how are they doing, both internally in systems and institutions and over time. Mm-hmm. So that's incredibly important. I think the other, the other way is, um, I mean, it is really the, the reason why you, you have to look at the outcomes because, um, and then you have to factor in all these other, like the debt means something different to someone who comes from a family that doesn't have wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, so income is one thing, and we track income, but what you see is, and, and it's one of the reasons why black students have exceptionally higher levels of default rates, even when they come from similar income backgrounds and debt loads. Um, And it has to do with racism in America and and the legacy of racism in America that had to do with housing and lots of other things, right? Lots of other societal factors that means it is more likely that a white family is going to not just have a better income, maybe at the same income, but will have wealth and sources of wealth and networks of, of um, resources that they can draw on that black families do not. So, uh, so I think you're absolutely right that the whole question about quality in many ways is about an equity question and whether we can make good. The, the American dream is really about full participation in the society, right? I mean, it is about um, upward mobility in a sense, but it's also about um, that community conversation you were having earlier and whether we're all part of the community or only some of us. Um, so I think that that for us, quality and equity are always sort of intertwined. Um, thank you for asking that question because it's, it's sometimes hard to talk about and I think some people think of them as somehow opposed. <laughs> um, but to me, you know, the commitment to quality is all about that commitment to equity. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Um, thank this, you. This has been a great candid conversation. Thanks, everybody, for participating in this. Uh, so I think there's there will be more to come on this issue uh, of quality assurance. And um, again, I appreciate it. I think hopefully everybody listening got something out of this. This has been part two of a two-part episode. If you missed part one, check it out for more discussion of accreditation in the future of employment. Thanks for listening.